Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being served. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Well, let's pray together before we come to God's word. Father, would you pray that as we gather here this morning and we've been rejoicing in song, in prayer, in testimony, we pray now, Lord, that you may take away any darkness from our, from our eyes, any hardness from our hearts, take away all the thoughts, the jumble of thoughts in our minds, and help us to hear God's voice as we read God's word. And above all, help us to focus on the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Some time back, I was reading one of John Piper's books. If you don't know John Piper, you need to read one of his books or go onto his website. He has a wonderful, wonderful website, uh, which deals with all kinds of issues. I was reading one of his books, and... I was struck by one of, his, one of his statements, which kind of stuck in my mind. He's writing to Christians, and, and he talked about the phrase he used, which stuck in my mind, was he talked about our daily battle with unbelief and sin. And I thought to myself, John, you get it, because that's what we all struggle with, our daily battle with unbelief and sin. You see, if we're honest, and we're dealing mainly with unbelief, if we're honest, if we're Christians and we're honest, and hopefully you're honest, uh, we all know there are times when we struggle with doubt, when we struggle with unbelief. It may be times when we're discouraged or disheartened, times when we, we've grown weary in service or just grown weary from perseverance. It may be times when, when, when we wonder... Is it really true, or have I perhaps been misled? Have, have I been deluded by those, those strange people at Christ Church Midrand, especially the rector? Um, you see, if we're honest, we all struggle. If you read the Psalms, you'll see the psalmist often expressing his struggles 
his concerns, his doubts, his fears with belief and with unbelief. So what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 15, he's writing to the church in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. It was a godless city. It, it was a big commercial city, much like Johannesburg, uh, saturated with materialism, with, with, uh, with, with immorality. It was a highly sexualized uh, city. And he's writing to Christians in the city who were struggling with doubt. And it's almost as if Paul is saying in this chapter, he's saying, John Piper, let me give you the antidote to your struggles. Let me give you the answer, the ultimate answer, the ultimate antidote to the struggles you and I have from time to time. And he points us to the resurrection of Christ, the person of Christ. He looks at Christ and he sees a real man who had a real death, who was really buried and who was really raised from the dead. And what Paul is saying is that is the ultimate antidote to your doubt and your confusion. It's not something inside of you. It's something outside of you. It's something external. Our assurance, our certainty is not based on our feelings or emotions. Those go up and down. Those come and go. It's not based upon our circumstances. It's not based upon the fact that God did or didn't answer our prayers in, in, in the way we wanted them answered. No, that's not the basis of certainty. Now, the basis of certainty is outside of ourselves. It's the person of Christ, his death, his resurrection, the work of Christ. So let's have a look at this chapter where Paul actually gives us two different worldviews. He unpacks two worldviews which were present in the church in Corinth. Now, now worldview, as you well know, is a framework we all have in our minds, whether you are conscious or unconscious. We all have a certain framework, a certain worldview, and that worldview pretty much is determined by the answers we give to the great questions of life. Questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What happens after death? Where do I come from? Who is God? What is the purpose of life? Now, those are the ultimate questions. Now, your answers to those questions will be your worldview. That'll be the framework which affects how you live, how you speak, how you act, what decisions you make. So what Paul does in this chapter is he points to two different worldviews which were present in the church in Corinth and no doubt is present here amongst us and listening on the website. The first worldview he looks at is a worldview of unbelief, a secular worldview. Now we need to do a bit of work in the text. Let's have a look at verse 3. Paul makes a, makes a stunning statement, affirmation. He's categorical. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So what Paul gives us here and gives the early Christians is the foundation of the Christian faith. It's a person. It's the person, Jesus. Now, we're kind of used to hearing that, but do you know that almost all of the major religions of the world are not based upon a person? It's not based upon a historical person. It's either philosophy or it's teaching or it's laws or it's experience. Now, of course, those have their place, 
But that's not the foundation of Christianity. The foundation of Christianity is the person, the living person of Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, who lived, who died, who was buried, and God supernaturally raised from the dead. That is the basis of our faith. However, you'll notice verse 12. There is a secular worldview in the church in Corinth. They're doubters, the unbelievers inside the church, verse 12. Notice what Paul says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, I mean, you can imagine two, two men being at a service, and afterwards they're having some cappuccino at the courtyard cafe, and uh, the one says to the other, you know, it's very, very nice to have Paul here as a guest speaker. It's always nice to have guest speakers and have a break from Martin. Um, but, I mean, can we really believe what he's saying? I mean, surely rational thinking people in modern-day Corinth don't believe this kind of stuff that dead people rise from the dead. Surely that's just in the realm of fantasy, of science fiction. Perhaps, perhaps Paul overheard them. So he takes their doubt. Perhaps he approaches them. He says, I've just heard your question. Let me, let me take your question to its logical conclusion and see where it ends up. And so he says, verse 13, he says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So, so Paul is saying, let's take your worldview to its logical conclusion. If there is no resurrection of the dead, it means that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, which means that Jesus isn't God. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then no one will be raised from the dead. It means that there's no judgment, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no eternity, there's no life after death. It actually means when he says your faith is futile, your faith is in vain, he's actually saying nothing matters. If Christ is not raised from the dead, it means no one is raised from the dead. If no one is raised from the dead, it means there's no God. It means nothing matters. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. It doesn't matter if you're good. It doesn't matter if you die, because in the end, we all just die. We're just a bunch of molecules, a bunch of genes. We're just sophisticated animals. And some of us, not that sophisticated. But they mainly at uh, Sunday school. Look across at verse 32, where he takes... The, the argument to its, to its logical conclusion. Verse 32, if Christ is not raised, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Heard that quote before? Well, that's where it comes from. If Christ is not raised, if no one is raised from the dead, well then what's the point of life? Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's actually quite brutal. He is saying, if there's no resurrection from the dead, here is, here is, the, key, here is the key marker, here is the key point. 
This will make or break it. If there's no resurrection from the dead, it means that Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, there is no ultimate purpose or meaning. We are just biological machines. We know different from the animals. The only meaning in life is to feed your face. I mean, that's really what verse 32 is saying. That's the only meaning in life. Richard Dawkins said much the same in his book called The Selfish Gene. This is what he said. He said, we are all survival machines for DNA. A monkey is a machine which preserves genes up trees. A fish is a machine which preserves genes in water. There's even a small worm which preserves genes in German beer mats. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for living. End of quote. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? We are here just as machines. We are reproducing DNA. We have no purpose. There's no reason for us being here. There's no meaning in life. Love doesn't mean anything. Hate doesn't mean anything. Nothing means anything. This is not science that Richard Dawkins is talking about. It's philosophy. And he's really just a child of Nietzsche. And Nietzsche said the same thing. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. We die and that's it. The only result is despair, which is why Nietzsche took his own life. So Paul takes the secular worldview to its logical conclusion. And he says, if there's no resurrection, there's no God, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, all that matters, verse 32, is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All that matters, perhaps you don't go for that, perhaps you shop till you drop. Or perhaps it's clippies and coke. You can start at 10 o'clock in the morning. In fact, I sometimes wonder why people start at 10 o'clock in the morning. I think there's a reason. Because they don't believe in the resurrection. Now, Academically, people can believe Richard Dawkins. They can believe the secular worldview, the eat and drink philosophy of life, but you actually can't live it. You can't live without purpose. It's just impossible. You see, deep down, everyone knows that we are made in the image of God. Deep down, everyone knows. We may deny it, but we know that life has a purpose. Life has meaning. We know that we are made for eternity. We know that. We may not be able to express it in quite those terms, but there's this yearning within us which, which can only be satisfied by things more than what you can eat, drink, and be merry with. The greatest tragedy is not death. The greatest tragedy is a life lived without purpose. Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist, understood that. He said, unless you assume a God... And if I may say, a God who raises from the dead. Unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. End of quote. Well, that's the first worldview. The second worldview that Paul gives us is a biblical worldview. Let's go back to verse 2. So he presents his readers with these two worldviews because they were present in the church in Corinth. And of course, they're present in almost every church, any group of people you will find them. 
So he presents them with a secular worldview and the despair, which is the ultimate conclusion. But he says there's another worldview, which doesn't end in despair. Let's go back to verse 12, the question that is posed, which actually determines the whole chapter. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, let me just say that that wasn't just a question in first century Corinth in modern-day Greece. That is a question that people have had through the ages. Do you know that in the, uh, many of the churches in the West, for the last 100, 150 years, many portions of the church, church in the West have had the same doubts about the resurrection. In actual fact, it's more than doubts. In many Western churches, they deny the physical resurrection of Christ. This is what one theologian said, I quote, Jesus lived on in the hearts of his disciples, but did not rise from the dead. Taken down from the cross, his body was probably buried in a shallow grave and may have been eaten by dogs, end of quote. Peter Conley, the Archbishop of Perth. You know, the Australians always give us problems. That's why we had to beat them last night. The Archbishop of Perth does not see the resurrection as a historical event, but an experience of the Spirit of Christ. He said there was no post-mortem event. The real Easter event was the disciples coming to faith, experiencing Christ the Spirit. So for Archbishop Conley and for others, the word resurrection does not mean a physical resurrection, a bodily, objective, historical resurrection. The word resurrection means a resurrection in your mind, that you finally come to understand the message of Jesus. Well, clearly that's not what Paul is talking about. And that's why Paul makes these four categorical statements in verse 3 to 5. It's not merely a spiritual resurrection. It's not just something in your mind. It's not just a aha moment where you say, oh, I now finally understand. No, 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 says Paul. It's not like that. It's historical. It's objective. Notice these four categorical statements that Paul makes in verse 3 to 5. Chapter 15, verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So he's speaking there of the death of Christ, that he actually died, he physically died. He was a person, he was a human being like me and you, with hands and fingers and nails and a wrist and arms and legs and ears and eyes, a physical person who walked on planet Earth 2,000 years ago. And he died on a cross. He died as my substitute. So we talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that Christ died in my place, that Christ quenched the wrath that I deserve, that my sins deserve. When we say that Christ died, that's a historical fact. When we say Christ died for our sins, that's a theological statement. He did die. Physically, actually, bodily. And we know from the Old Testament that the Lamb of God had to be sacrificed for sin. And so Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God, 
dies in our place, on our behalf, for our sins. Second statement, verse 4, that he was buried. So, so once again, what, what Paul is repeating, what he makes want to make absolutely clear is this is not a spiritual experience. This is not rescue 911. No, no, no. He was, he was buried. It's graphic. It's physical. He was a dead corpse. Some, some of you have seen dead corpses. Perhaps you've gone with your family members. It's a pretty, it's a pretty hard experience going to see a loved one who's now dead. And if you've seen a dead body, you know it's a dead body. I mean, there's no, there's no confusion in your mind. The body's dead. Paul wants to make that quite clear. You know, he was buried by some of his disciples, by some of the women. Do you think for one moment that they would have buried him if they thought he was alive? I mean, they weren't stupid. No, he was dead. He looked dead. He felt dead. He was dead. They buried him. Paul is trying to make clear the objective reality of his death and then the objective reality of his resurrection. So he wasn't resuscitated. He wasn't just his heart stopped beating for 20 minutes. No, no, no. He was dead. They buried him. Third statement, verse 4, as I've just said. God raised him on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Well, of course that's supernatural. Dead men don't rise, except when God's involved. I mean, when God's involved, things are different. The laws of nature are put aside because God has other purposes. It's not illogical. This is not the kind of dead person who's been raised by one of our so-called prophets or apostles in recent days. You're supposed to raise dead people from the dead, and then we discover they weren't dead at all. No, 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 this is quite different. God supernaturally raised him from the dead. It is a miracle. And he says according to the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament scriptures. Do you know that there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, most of them written 700, 800 year, years before the birth of Christ concerning Jesus, his life, and his death? Do you know that? I mean, who would have prophesied yesterday morning that Bafana would beat Egypt? We can't get it right in 12 hours. The Old Testament makes a prophecy seven, eight, nine hundred years before the birth of Christ, and it comes about. It was prophesied that he would be crucified. It was prophesied that he was crucified on, on a cross. It was prophesied that he would be crucified with, with thieves and robbers. It was prophesied that he would be, that his hands, his feet would be pierced. It was prophesied that his side would be pierced. It was prophesied that his bones would not be broken. It was prophesied that they would cast lots for his clothes. It was prophesied that, that he would be buried. It was prophesied that he would be raised from the dead, just as Jonah was in the whale for three days. So Christ was raised from the dead after three days. All prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ, all coming true. What chances do you think that that can just be luck? Do you know that the prophets talked about his crucifixion before crucifixion was a common way of killing people. It almost never happened. 
So when the prophet, when Isaiah or Jeremiah made the prophecy that he would be crucified, crucified on a tree, they were actually prophesying something they didn't understand. It was only the Romans in, in 100, 200 BC who started the practice of crucifixion. And then the fourth statement which Paul makes is he wasn't just buried, he wasn't just crucified. God didn't just raise him from the dead. No, there were people who saw it, eyewitnesses. That's what we have here in the Bible. We have eyewitness records. Here's the source documents of the Christian faith. Read about it. It's there. Anything historical, you could only prove through eyewitnesses. And so he tells us that the first one who saw him was Cephas, which is another name for Peter. And then there was the 12, notice verse 5, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The letter of, of Corinthians was written round about 50 A.D. Jesus died round about 30, 31, 32 A.D., which means the letter is written 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. So Paul is saying there were 500 people who saw him at the same time, and most of them are still alive, so go and check it out with them. Go and ask them. Some have died, but most are still alive. Don't take my word for it. Go and ask them. Well, let me close off with some of the implications of the death and resurrection of Christ, the work of Christ. The first implication is that Jesus is still alive, that he is alive, and we can meet him. So the Bible teaches us that after the resurrection, he spent six weeks with his, his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven to the right-hand side of God, meaning a place of glory, a place of lordship, of sovereignty. He's still alive. He's not dead. You see, we don't have pilgrimages. As Christians, we've got nowhere to go. Uh, perhaps you regret that, but you shouldn't. We don't have a burial ground to go to. There's no Mecca for us. Because he's risen. And just as the early disciples met him, we can meet him. Not in a physical way, but we meet him through his word and through his spirit. That is how we meet him. So perhaps even this morning, as we've been singing, as you've been praying, as you've heard the testimonies, as you've listened to God's word, you have felt God the Holy Spirit pressing in upon your mind, pressing in upon your heart. Your heart. We can know him, we can meet him through his word and through his spirit. The second implication is that Jesus has dealt with your past. Notice verse 3. He died for our sins. As I've often said before, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what it was, how long it was, how deep it was. There is grace. I mean, that's the gospel. A psychiatrist once said that if forgiveness was true, he didn't believe in it, but he said if forgiveness was true, I would lose three quarters of my patience. You see, we live with guilt and sin. Why? Because we have a conscience. Why do we have a conscience? Because we're made in the image of God. So you can escape God, but you can't escape your conscience. 
which is from God. And Christ came precisely for those sins. I mean, isn't that extraordinary? Just extraordinary. He's dealt with our past. Thirdly, he's the prototype. Notice verse 20. Jesus is the prototype. He's the model. He's the template. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, the first Adam, all die. So also in Christ, who is the second Adam, shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. How extraordinary. If we belong to Christ, Christ is the template. He is the prototype. Those who trust in him will also be raised from the dead. We will die, our bodies will die, our bodies will be buried, but our spirits will be raised at that moment to be with the Lord. It's extraordinary. The fourth implication is that Jesus has conquered death. Have a look at verse 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I think for most, most people, they won't say it, but for most people, the greatest fear, the greatest horror is death. And they're right. You see, without God, without the resurrection, it makes everything meaningless. I've often quoted from Woody Allen, who typifies that terror of death. You remember he, he joked, he said, it's not that I'm afraid to die, it's just I don't want to be there when it happens. But on a more serious note, I think he... he um, He voices the real horror of death for human beings because we know it's not right. Why do we know it's not right? It's because we made in the image of God. We know we were made for eternity. And yet this is what he says, which I think eloquently, most eloquently, expresses the horror people have. The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror, and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. End of quote. I think that's sometimes why older people become alcoholics, become over-the-counter drug addicts, because you want to escape that horror. If there's no resurrection and there's no God, then I think clippies and coke at 10 o'clock in the morning is a good idea. Because you don't want to think about it. Christ has come, the physical, bodily Jesus Christ who lived, who died, he was buried. God raised him from the dead. And Paul tells us those who trust in him, who submit to him as king, will also be raised from the dead. And death is not the end. I've told you before that because of my job, I go to many funerals, and it's a privilege to be with people. 
at a time of great grief and loss. But generally, it's a generalization, but generally speaking, you can tell whether the people who are gathered there are Christians or not. The first clue is that if they're not Christians, generally they're all dressed in black and they're wearing dark glasses. And generally, the, the service is pretty morbid and depressing. And generally, there's no laughter and no hope. And then I go to a Christian, to, to a funeral of a Christian, a well-known Christian, a family, a friends are there. There's nothing wrong in wearing black. There are perhaps a couple of people who wear black. It's fine, but most people don't. They wear just normal clothes. And there's laughter. And we remember and we laugh about some of the things that happened, some of the things the person said. And through the grief and the tears, there's an there's a almost palpable sense of hope, of life, in that group of people. It's almost hard to describe. Because though we grieve, and of course we grieve, we have hope that Jesus is the prototype. Just as he was raised from the dead, those who trust in him will be with them. And so our hope when we bury that person is they not only with the Lord, but one day we'll be with them and with Christ. I mean, that's hope. So the question this morning is, which worldview are you going to hold to? You're free to choose. You may have another kind of worldview. But remember, your worldview has consequences. Ideas have consequences. And the worldview you commit yourself to you will face the consequences of that worldview. Is it going to be secular? Or is it going to be biblical? Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word and you can tell God where you are. Father, we pray that you will forgive all of us in this room today, all of us, when we have lost hope. Forgive us, Lord, when we have lost hope in you, in your goodness, in your love, in your power. And Lord, we've all been there at some time. Will you forgive us? Will you remind us again that what we have in front of us is truth, truth with a capital T, and that our certainty, our assurance, is not based in our feelings or emotions or our circumstances. No, it's based on what you have done for us in Christ. Help us, Lord, to remember that, not to forget it. Help us to know that we have a rock. It doesn't change. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. So that one day, not only will we live for you, but one way we will die and be with you. So, Lord, go with us into this week. Help us to serve you and to love you in all that we do. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.